Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Brought to you by the Brooklyn Cyclones. Faith at the forefront of today's events. From a Catholic cultural perspective, it's in the arena with your host, Monsignor Kieran Harrington. Hey, gang, my name is Monsignor Kieran Harrington, and I'm here today with Joe Concha. Thanks very much, Joe, for coming in. You Good know, to be back. Joe is a reporter and columnist for The Hill. We're going to talk a lot of things about the elections that just recently happened this week, primary elections and elections for Congress, uh, also selection of candidates for governor in many different places. So There's always of, something to talk about, isn't there? There certainly is. There really is. And, and whether or not Trump is a help or a hindrance, we'll find out those questions. Yeah. We're going to talk with Father Matt Malone from America Magazine in a little bit also. Uh, he's going to speak to us a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Cardinal McCarrick situation, what that means for the church, and what America Magazine is doing and, and their coverage of those stories. And then later we're going to speak to an author, Patrice Gopo. She is the author of a new book, All the Colors We Will See. And finally, we're going to speak to Sam Barofsky. He's a filmmaker from right here in Staten Island. Joe, elections. What happened uh, this past week? On Tuesday, we had a special election, Monsignor, in Ohio, which normally any other year you don't pay a lot of attention to because it was in a deep red district, a deep conservative district. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump won it by 12 points back in 2016. Uh, It's been in Republican hands since 1983. So that ain't going anywhere, right? Except. Why was it such a fight? Oh, I I think because every midterm election, 18 out of the last 20, the party in power, whoever controls the White House, loses at least 33 seats in the midterms. Barack Obama in 2010 lost 63 seats. 33 seats. The Republicans only hold the majority by 22 seats. That's correct. So what does that mean? That means that say hello to House Speaker Pelosi again. And yeah, uh, she's 78 years old, but uh, she says she's going to run again and she's got a lot of power within the party. So it's hard to see just based on history. Right. And I know that Trump kind of trumps history. In other words, (laughs) he defies a lot of things, but it's hard to not see based on this result in Ohio where. About a thousand votes only decided between the winner and the loser. And there's still counting votes, absentee ballots, but it looks like it's going to stay in Republican hands. The fact that that went from 12 points up to almost zero tells you where things are going to go in November. What about the other elections? In particular, let's think about primary elections that like who are the Republicans selecting to run for office and who are the Democrats selecting for office? And what does that tell us? It tells us that the parties are going in some very different directions. And if you want to be in the mushy middle, get the heck out. You're done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in other words, uh, look at Joe Crowley right here in Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. The 14th district in the Bronx and Queens. The guy's there for 10 terms. He outspends his opponent, who was a bartender last year, 28 years old, 10 to 1, and he loses by 14 points. And she's a declared socialist. Mm-hmm. She wants Medicare for all. She wants education for all. Uh, she was a Bernie Sanders aide. And now she is, according to the DNC chair, Tom Perez, uh, the new face of the Democratic Party. That's all you need to know. Everything is going to outside the middle and towards the extremes to appeal to a smaller but more loyal and energetic base. So what do you think that's going to mean for our body politics and for our national discourse? Oh, we're at 
permanent polarization mode at this point. It's hard to see us getting back to the 80s and Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan grabbing a drink and working things out. It just seems like everybody's playing to a crowd and giving them comfort food and to compromise looks weak. And isn't that a shame? Mm-hmm. What about uh, Trump saying there's going to be a giant red wave come <laughs> Election Day? Donald Trump, before he was president, and there was a time because it seems like we forget about that. He was a real estate mogul. Right. And he was the host of The Apprentice, It's basically a salesman. Right. And when you're a salesman, you always push the best result. So, of course, he's going to go out there and say, you know what, we're going to do well. We're going to have a red wave. Uh, but I mean, every indicator that you see, and I get that he beat all the polls in 2016, says that this is probably uh, going to be a whooping for the Republicans. And the Republicans had to outspend the Democrat like five to one in that seat, didn't they? Yeah. In that Ohio, in that Ohio congressional seat. Right. And I don't think money means all that much anymore. You know, Hillary Clinton outspent Donald so. Trump yeah. yet because social media, I think, is the equalizer. You can get your message out for free. You used to have to go on television or send out press releases or hold press conferences. And now you have any thought as a politician, tweet it out. It gets retweeted. It goes viral. And there's your advertising. Now, generally, Republicans are outnumbered by Democrats across the country. And I think almost in every congressional district, actually. Right. Yeah. The Republicans are outnumbered. by, But there's a certain thing called intensity. Right. And so how does that sort of work itself out in terms of of this election. Oh, I think that the Democrats don't need a message. They don't need to say, here's what we're going to do for the economy, because how are you going to run against this economy, right? How can an idea be better than 4.1 GDP and unemployment below 4%? Those are two magic numbers. So they don't have to run on that. They don't have to run on national security. In other words, uh, under Trump, 98% of the ISIS caliphate has now been destroyed. Uh, North Korea isn't firing missiles over Japan anymore. So he has all these successes. But it's going to be an emotion election where people are voting against Donald Trump because of who he is and not so much what he accomplished. That is your theme, Monsignor. And, you know, it's interesting. I was reading in The New York Times this week that Lindsey Graham said unless a Republican has like a 10 or 12 point, uh, you know, a 10 or 12 point margin of victory in past election, they're not safe. That's that's pretty that's pretty bone chilling if you're a Republican. Yeah, I think so. So the, the trick is here. All right. You basically concede the House. I mean, I hate to do that. It's only August and a lot of things can change, I suppose. But uh, holding on to the Senate, then it is your equalizer. So then you still have two thirds of the branches of government. Right. You still have the White House. and You still have the Senate. And then here's the thing. If the Democrats take how, how many seats are up in the Senate? So oh, I think seven have to flip. But they're in they're in districts that are going to be very hard to flip. Not district states. Excuse yeah. me. That going to be very hard to flip. Um, if it gets to 40 or 50 seats, I was talking to a pollster the other day, and he had said, a GOP pollster, no less, he said, if it gets to 40 or 50, then you're going to see impeachment proceedings begin, because then that's that's a pretty good majority that they'd have. But everybody forgets, impeachment doesn't mean Donald Trump's right. gone. He has to be convicted in the Senate. Be, uh, yes, exactly. And you need two-thirds there, and that's hard. And remember what happened with Bill Clinton? He got impeached. You know where his poll numbers went? Through the roof. He left office with 68 percent approval because people thought that the the Republican Party then was overplaying their hand. And I think the Democrats, unless you had something stone cold on Trump in terms of this investigation, it doesn't appear to be anything outside of he fired Comey and said mean things about Mueller. And that's obstruction of justice. I don't know. Obstructions of justice of a crime that wasn't committed. That's hard to sell. I think they may overplay their hands and actually strengthen Trump by impeaching him. As crazy as that sounds. All right. So uh, do you think that the Comey investigations are factoring into this election and does it help Trump? I don't think they factor in anything. 
I think that doesn't a, help him, doesn't hurt him. No, I think it's a net net. I think if you're a Trump supporter, you think it's much ado about nothing. And I think if you're a partisan anti-Trump person, you see it as a mechanism to get rid of Donald Trump. And it all it all kind of washes so like in Vegas. Let's think about the let's not just look at the House and Senate here. Let's take a look at like statewide races. Kansas, for instance, what's going to happen in the Kansas gubernatorial race? Oh, boy. I mean, you have Chris Kobach. Republicans have a huge advantage right now in state houses. Yes. Right. Yeah. And Kansas is as deep red as it gets. Like we talked about that Ohio district. It's got nothing on Kansas, mm-hmm. right? Kansas, Nebraska, all the farm states, it seems to be doing well. I, I find it interesting with the farmers that they're, they're taking such a beating over these tariffs. But uh, almost all NBC did this great report where all of them are sticking with the president because they see long term this going better. So, I mean, I would think that Kansas stays in the hands of Republicans. I think still something like 32 states are Republican governed, mm-hmm. right? Which is interesting, right? Uh, after all this, Republicans have all these governorships and they have the House and they have the Senate and they have the presidency. They only were able to basically to pass a tax cut. It's remarkable with all that power, what little they were able to accomplish. Well, let, let's think, though, uh, I'm, you know, this is a religious show. So how is this election playing itself out for religious people, particularly evangelicals, Catholics, and maybe even Latino Catholics? And, and especially, how does the uh, uh, the selection of Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court maybe energize those voters, or does it def- does it deflate them? What happens? Oh boy, I, I would think that you know <clears throat> uh, there's a story that came out in UC, uh, USA Today in uh, I think it was early July and talks about how Trump is their hero and they're not going anywhere, which is ironic because he's thrice divorced. And he doesn't seem to be the most morally upstanding guy like every other politician, right. basically. Uh, but they're they're sticking with him because they like the policy so much. And particularly, they like the Supreme Court selections, of course. Neil Gorsuch and now Kavanaugh. And Kavanaugh, yeah. So they see a means to an end that the Trump performance outweighs the person. And as long as we're getting things done, every people like Kavanaugh and Gor- Gorsuch will be around a heck of a lot longer than Donald Trump ever will be. And that is the pro outweighing the con. So, you know, what seems what's the interesting thing is what's getting in the way of Donald Trump is Donald Trump. His personality is what's driving a lot of this, isn't it? Yeah, because it seems like the policies people are not getting crazy. Well, maybe maybe it is the policy. Is it the is it the policy towards immigrants? Is it is it the policies towards those who are refugees or is it Donald Trump? Donald Trump. You think he's what's getting in the way? It's not his personality. It's his thumbs. It's the Twitter. Everybody, unless you're a staunch Trump supporter, you don't like the fact that. But Sean Hannity and and Sean Hannity and others are saying, "No, keep it up. You're doing the right thing." Rush Limbaugh is telling them, "Do what you're doing. This is what's going to win." Right, and that's the thirty percent of the party. I think the staunch people that uh, Trump once said, "I could walk out in the Fifth Avenue, shoot somebody, and no one would care." That's that thirty percent. He needs to appeal to. Uh, but it's also driving there. But isn't it driving their numbers like the Democrat intensity is going through the roof? I hear it's like seven, eight plus. Oh, yes. Big right? time, particularly on millennials. And we go back to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in, in Manhattan. I mean, the fact that she was able to win just shows you the enthusiasm behind particularly younger candidates and ones that are pushing socialist ideas. Right. Declared socialist because free stuff. If I'm a student and I have 30 to 100 thousand dollars in debt and that's more than 40 percent of students right now. Think about that. And I'm told, oh, I could get free college and I don't have to pay for my health care, which is costing me a lot. That seems pretty appealing. You don't ever get to that third part of the question, which is 
oh, how do I pay for this? <laughs> and Ocasio-Cortez still can't talk about that. Yeah, so enthusiasm will give the House back. I predict you can play back the tape, Monsignor, because I know we keep tapes here like Nixon uh, in November. Giving back the House, probably not the Senate, and then we'll be at a complete standstill. All right, Joe, when we come back, we're going to speak with Father Matt Malone. He's the president of uh, America Media. He's the senior editor of America Magazine. Uh, we're going to speak to him a little bit about what uh, – uh, what um, Cardinal McCarrick has been happening with the Cardinal McCarrick situation. What does that mean for the church in the uh, United States? Uh, what uh, What is Pope Francis doing and how is that going to help intensify uh, or at least help uh, heal some of the wounds of the church here in the United States? So that's Father Matt Malone. He's going to come. He's going to be on just in the next segment. Then we're going to be speaking to later author Patrice Scopo. She's the author of a book, All the Colors We Will See. And later we're going to speak to a Staten Island filmmaker. So there's a lot to talk about, a lot to listen to. Uh, we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Dear Calvary Hospital, James Lee was a true hero. Saving lives was something he always wanted to do. Whether as a paratrooper for the 82nd Airborne or as a New York City fireman, they called him Jimmy. I was proud to call him Dad. But when terminal illness ravaged his body, this man's man knew that this was one life that could not be saved. Not even by me, an experienced nurse. It just wasn't fair that he had to suffer like this. But then Calvary stepped in. You relieved his enormous pain and not only gave him the peace and comfort he deserved, but you also gave me and my family a chance to enjoy his final days, smiling and laughing, together one last time. How can we ever forget what you mean to us? Yours truly, Colleen Lee. This is Frank Calamari, president of Calvary Hospital, where life continues. Call us at 718-518-2000. Thank you. As the pieces of the financial, investing, and retirement puzzle continue to get more complicated, feel confident in your financial future at Jannie Montgomery Scott. Jannie's analysts and market strategists have the knowledge and expertise to help you understand trends and identify opportunities in changing markets. Call George Prezioso at 718-238-4800 for a complimentary consultation and financial report. Or go to Jannie.com. Jannie Montgomery Scott, LLC. The FBI reports there is a burglary in the U.S. every 15 seconds. If you're not alarmed, you should be. At Alarms R Us, we keep your loved ones safe with our burglar and fire alarm systems and 24-hour central station monitoring. Call Alarms R Us toll-free at 866-996-6900 to schedule your free security consultation. Again, that number is 866-996-6900. It's always better to be safe than sorry. So call Alarms or Us now to protect your home and family. In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington on 710 WOR. Hey, gang, welcome back to In the Arena. My name is Monsignor Kieran Harrington here with Father Matt Malone from America and for Joe Concha from The Hill. America Media is the leading provider of editorial content for Catholics and those who want to know what Catholics are thinking, producing high-quality, accessible material across all platforms. America Magazine has been the continuously published since 1909, long time. Yeah. Well, very long time, making it one of the oldest magazines in the I haven't the been there the whole time. No, I, we can tell. <laughs> Even though I see a little gray coming in, Matt. You're so there, been, just yeah. for respectability. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Matt. First, let, let's start with uh, 
Cardinal McCarrick. You know, sure. I was just saying to to Joe. Joe's a political guy and writes on political stuff. I said, you know, does, does this McCarrick thing resonate outside the Catholic community, or is it primarily located within the, the Catholic community? What are your thoughts? Well, of course, it's a reality that exists everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. The abuse of power, sexual abuse, and so forth. But I, 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 you know, I would say that among the Catholics that I have encountered, the way it resonates with what's happening in the larger culture is in, in the analogy that they draw to the 2008 financial crisis, mm-hmm. where uh, you, know, you had a lot of folks who d- did irresponsible things, immoral things, and almost blew up the world economy. Uh, and a lot of people suffered as a result of that. And yet the folks who were really making those decisions, uh, who were in positions of leadership, still have not largely been held accountable, certainly by civil courts and uh, and the law. So there's, you know, there there seems to be a uh, a double standard when it comes to uh, people in positions of power and what they're allowed to get away with and what they're not. And I think that that enrages people. Most Catholics, I think, uh, understand that, you know, the sin is a human reality and that uh, original sin is a reality. Uh, I think they could survive this news that uh, the abuse of power or sexual abuse were somehow were taking place in the church if it were not accompanied by the news that no one did anything about it. Mm-hmm. That's right? interesting. That that is in, I think that that is the thing that outrages them even more than the initial crime. I think we're in a news cycle uh, also, uh, Father, where you have um, President Trump basically blots out the sun. Right. All news centers around Trump in some way, shape or form. Uh, and if it's not him, then it's something political. Right. Look at the cable news stations. Mm-hmm. It, it's all political now. You don't see stories all that much about a missing child here or a wildfire there. Right. And I think in this case, just to relate back to what you were saying, when, when I just looked this up right now, we were talking about it during the commercial. Uh, yeah. On July 28th, there, there were some stories uh, about this topic, but then I have not seen any follow up since. It comes and it goes like the tide. And for whatever that means, when stories like this used to have legs, they don't have legs uh, anymore until another shoe drops. And right now it doesn't look like any other shoes have dropped. So Russ Duthon, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. One of his points was, you know, the bishops of the United States and maybe Rome have made a sort of grand bargain, which was kind of leave us alone. And let us handle our own affairs. We're not gonna. We're not gonna have a moral voice. We're not gonna speak. Uh, we're not gonna kind of rock the boat. But let us kind of manage our own affairs. Essentially, do you think that that's what's sort of going on? Has basically the American people, or the uh, or the American elites, kind of written off the voice, the moral voice of the Catholic Church, Joe? Yeah, I, I, I. There's so many things to unpack with that, right? I mean, I, I think that overall that. People tend to shut these things out a little bit more because maybe they're numb by it all. Maybe after, remember that movie Spotlight? Yep. And it talked about what happened in Boston. I, I don't want to say it's, it's expected, but no one's shocked by this sort of thing anymore. So they kind of say, eh, this, this is something that happened. And, well, you know, there are some bad apples in, in a bunch. But overall, I, if, you're, if you're a Catholic, I believe that 99% of, of the church consists of good people trying to do good things. So do you think that the church still has a moral voice in the public square? Of course. Okay. Absolutely it does. Look when Pope Pope Francis goes anywhere, Uh right? Look at No person on this planet, and I'm including LeBron James (laughs) or Donald Trump, can attract the kind of crowds uh, that that he does and inspires people the way that he does. What do you think, Matt? I think that that's true. I think that 
Pope Francis is the most credible leader on the planet at the moment. Uh, in, it seems to be embraced by people across the political spectrum. Um, and by credible, I mean in terms of politics. But I would say, uh, look, the church is, has a, uh, is relevant and has a moral voice because she has a mandate from the Lord to have a moral voice. Uh, and, but uh, there are a number of reasons why uh, that voice is not being heard. Uh, or what is being heard is not being received. And it, I think it's a, a complex problem. But part of it certainly is the, the, the cost and credibility, relevance, reputation to the church in the United States as a result of the sexual abuse crisis, which we've now been living with for almost 20 years, mm-hmm. uh, and the cover-up. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, will, I come back to something that Pope Benedict said in a conversation with Peter Sewald. Uh, the German journalist, he, mm-hmm. you know, when, when he said, look, this crisis has enfeebled the church's evangelization. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that is a, that is a, uh, it, it can't be a mortal wound to the church because we know that the Lord has guaranteed us that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. But that is, in the moment, absolutely crippling. All right. So I have heard people suggest, and I'm going to pose this to you. Tell me what your reaction to this is, is that the lesson of the American bishops was learned a while ago on this question. And it was when uh, an archbishop came into a diocese Mm -hmm. where there was an offender uh, of protecting just on these sorts of things, covering up on the just these sorts of matters. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this bishop uh, restricted the ministry of uh, his predecessor, uh, and he was reversed by Rome. And, of course, I'm speaking about Archbishop Gomez in Los Angeles, who restricted the ministry of Cardinal Roger Mahoney, and as a result of that was reversed. And in addition to that, uh, despite the fact that he is the leader of the largest diocese in the United States by far, despite the fact that he is a Mexican immigrant and a leader on immigration reform, has not been named a cardinal. And so the lesson is learned don't criticize a cardinal because if you criticize a cardinal, you won't be a cardinal. Hmm. I mean, do you, you think that that's true? I'm asking you if you think it's true. Yeah, I, I've heard people say that. It seems to me kind of plausible that uh, here's a person who was who was chastised for restricting the ministry of somebody who was basically involved in covering up on these questions. Hmm. I mean, I would hesitate to draw too general uh, a principle from that event, uh, because I don't know the specifics of the case or what was involved or who was involved. Um, but I, I, I think generally, my perception is that part of the culture of clericalism, which, by the way, is not just perpetuated by clerics. It's, 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 it's a phenomenon that we find everywhere in the church. You mm-hmm. know, um, lay folks can be overly deferential uh, uh, mm-hmm. to, to clerics and ignore what they're up to and what they're saying. Uh, but I, I would, but there is a uh, I think it's a constitutive, a constitutive element of that culture is, uh, you know, you have to, um, uh, you know, you have to pay your dues and you have to mind your mouth and you have to find your, you know, find your way in a way that doesn't make waves. Uh, and I mean, that's how one advances traditionally through the clerical ranks. So the, uh, the speculation, some have uh, argued that there should be a new impanelment of some sort of uh, way of investigating this. One bishop in Albany uh, Ed Scharfenberger said that it should actually not involve bishops, that there should be a group of lay people that does not involve bishops so that it could be truly independent. Look, the good news here is that we do have a model for dealing with this crisis, right? Uh, because we've been dealing with it 
for decades. And, you know, the, the panels that we have created uh, that are a mix of experts and lay people and clerics, uh, they seem to have performed pretty well, you know, when, it, when we're dealing at the level of, of, of priest offenders. Uh, so I, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't start there as a potential model for dealing with bishops. Well, but ultimately, those boards report their findings to the bishop. Mm-hmm. So if he's the accused, that's part of the problem, right? Well, but yeah, it would require— So unless you're going to yeah. have to change a venue and have a different—that uh, uh, that allegations are brought to a, uh, a metropolitan tribunal of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or it, Of it course, would in this case, it would have been the metropolitan himself who was accused, so right. it would have been a hardship. Or it would, requ- it would require the bishops to agree to create some kind of para- parallel structure— that they would, uh, the findings of which they would agree to abide by. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your podcast that's now under American Media. How is that being received? Which, uh, which one? We have several, actually, I'm so, glad to say. <laughs> that's a nice problem it's, to have. It's a Jesuitical <laughs> podcast. Ah, uh, yeah, Jesuitical podcast. Yeah, exactly. So we have- you know, uh, these uh, podcasts that are- yeah. by the way, Mental reservation. <laughs> mental reservation. <laughs> and by the way- That would actually be a great name for a Jesuit <laughs> podcast. <wouldn't it? laughs> and before you answer, yeah. you have one of the better radio voices that I've heard. Oh, thank you. Thank right? You. I appreciate that. Absolutely. I mean, those yeah. are some absolutely. good pipes there. Yes, it absolutely. The John Sterling of, yeah. of, of, of the club. Good stuff, man. But go ahead. Thanks. So uh, we have a podcast that's based on the radio show we do on Sirius every every week. We have one that is based on the Examine, which is rooted in uh, Ignatian spirituality, helping people to find God in their daily lives. We have another that's based on the Word column that we have in the magazine, which is reflections on the weekly scriptures uh, from Mass. Uh, but the one you're referring to is, I think, uh, Jesuitical, which is... Um, I, I I have to admit was not my idea at all. <laughs> uh, the we're lucky in America to, to be have, a good leader. You don't have to be the one who comes up with the idea. No, you don't. You know, and actually, thing. it's you, you know you're you know you're actually doing something right, right. when other people come up with good that's ideas, exactly. right? Uh, and uh, you know we're lucky now that we we have forty five people on the staff of America, and uh, you know a, a good number of them are under the age of thirty five, and they came to me one day and they said, you know. This, there's this one voice that we would like to have out there speaking to young people, people in their 20s and 30s. Um, so these uh, three young folks on the editorial staff, uh, Zach Davis and Ogle Segura and Ashley McKinless, they developed this whole concept uh, where it would be the three of them, well, what they, they style themselves the hip young lay editors mm-hmm. at the Jesuit Magazine America, and, uh, and of course hip Lay and young means I'm never on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're pretty young. <laughs> and where, they, can, uh, where can they find? Where can people find that? They can find it at americamagazine.org. Okay. Uh, and they can also follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical. Great. Yeah. Thanks very much, Father Matt Malone, the My pleasure. president of America Magazine. We're going to come back and we're going to speak to Patrice Gopo. She's the author of a new book, All the Colors That We See. It's a stories about uh, questions on reflections on race. And so uh, we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. St. Sebastian is a thriving parish. The chapel is open for adoration with benediction weekdays from 7.30 until 6.45 and Sundays from 8 to 5. There are also weeknight masses every day at 7 p.m. with a Spanish service on Thursdays, in addition to the regular Sunday mass schedule, which offers eight opportunities for worship, including a 10.30 a.m. mass with ASL interpreter and a noon mass in Spanish. Come out and join us at 3963 57th Street in Woodside, New York. 
and Butchies of Brooklyn, Italian kitchen and legendary desserts. We offer everything, a cafe, a bakery, a restaurant, and full bar. Our kitchen offers old-world Italian recipes, handed down from generation to generation, specializing in Italian-American cuisine. Let us host your next affair in our home, or we can cater to you in your home. Located in Staten Island at 4864 Arthur Kill Road, and you can call us at 718-227-0002. Founded in 1985, the Brooklyn Veterinarian Group, located on New Utrecht Avenue, has been serving the community's pet needs for over 25 years. Dr. Pernice and his staff handle everything from prevention of heartworms, fleas, ticks to vaccinations, x-rays, and routine surgical procedures. Call 718-331-7775. Again, that number is 718-331-7775. Check out their website at www.brooklynvetgroup.com. Mention In the Arena and receive 10% off your first visit. As the pieces of the financial investing and retirement puzzle continue to get more complicated, feel confident in your financial future at Janney Montgomery Scott. Janney's analysts and market strategists have the knowledge and expertise to help you understand trends and identify opportunities in changing markets. Call George Prezioso at 718-238-4800 for a complimentary consultation and financial report. Or go to Janney.com. Janney Montgomery Scott, LLC. In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington. Call in at 347-921-4NET. 347-921-4NET. Hey, gang. Welcome back to In the Arena. My name is Monsignor Kieran Harrington. I'm here with Joe Concha from The Hill. Thanks, Joe, for being with us again. No better time on a Sunday morning I'd like to spend than here. Here. That's right. I hope you're still going to church, though, don't I think of course. you get out of going to church today. This all right? is the appetizer. All right. Very this good. I'm, I'm with a Monsignor right, for an hour. And I'm going sure. to church. Then you're going I'm to in, church baby. afterwards. Uh, Joe, we're going to be joined by uh, Patrice Scopo. She's the author of a new book, All the Colors We Will See, a collection of essays that look at the difficulties we all face in our life's journeys. Uh, she talks about questions like immigration and race, marriage, faith, and her reflection on her own journey, uh, challenging her to wonder if the differences that divide us actually bring us together. And so we're very happy to have uh, Patrice with us here in the arena. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Patrice, your parents are Jamaicans. You grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. What was it like for you growing up in Alaska, being from Jamaica? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I am the child of Jamaican immigrants, and I was born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. And I will say, It was uh, definitely a mixture of experiences. There are some wonderful aspects about growing up in Alaska. I feel that my parents as Jamaican immigrants were really embraced in that community and they made friends in their early days that honestly are like family to me. But I think the other reality of my experience growing up in Alaska is that I was one of very few black children in my school classrooms, in my Sunday school classes and things of that nature. And I think from my parents, being Jamaican immigrants, they didn't have a lot of understanding of what it was to be a black American in this country. So I feel like in many ways, I was trying to navigate my way myself through that. And I think that just proved challenging at times. Patrice, I got to know, when you are deciding to move in Jamaica, you're looking at a couple of places to go. I would think Alaska. And now I understand that your bobsled team is excellent. You guys can make the transition pretty well. I saw the movie. But what what compelled your parents to go to Alaska from Jamaica? I don't that's that's quite the jump. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think it is a big jump. And I, I go into this a lot more in the book. But the short answer is that my father actually originally came to New York City when he was at the end of high school. So he finished out high school here in the States. And he was a permanent resident at the time. And then he had actually gone back to Jamaica. And he met my mother during that time. And he got a Vietnam draft notice. Um, and in order to maintain his residency, his permanent residency, he needed to respond to that. So he did respond to the draft notice. And while everyone else in his training group got sent to Vietnam, he got sent to Alaska. And so that's how they ended up there. It wasn't really like they were choosing to move to Alaska, but in many ways, like this country orchestrated that move for them. And then when my father got out of the military, they just stayed in Alaska and they raised their family there. Now, um, Alaska is way up there. So how do you end up meeting a guy from Zimbabwe? I know my family (laughs) were all over the map, right? So when I finished graduate school, I went to the University of Michigan for graduate school and I was studying. um, uh, I got my MBA and my master's of public policy and my intent was to work with community development projects. And so I went to South Africa to Cape Town and I was working with a group of women, helping them start small businesses. And it was there that I met my husband, Nyasha, who is originally from Zimbabwe, but he had gone to the University of Cape Town and he was living in Cape Town at the time. So we met during my 10 weeks that I was there in South Africa. And now you live in where? In Charlotte. We live in Charlotte, North Carolina now. So after my first child was born in South Africa, I wanted to come back to the States and to be honestly, to be closer to my mother who was still in Alaska and true Charlotte and Anchorage are not super close, but they are a lot closer than Cape Town and Anchorage. All right. I I got another, you know, curiosity question. How is your child born in South Africa? Was that just a little pit stop on the way to Charlotte? I mean, how does that happen? Well, yeah. So my husband and I, we met in South Africa and when we got married, I lived in South Africa for about two years. Wow. Mm-hmm. She's got yeah, some frequent so flyer miles, I have a feeling. Yeah. Born there. Oh, that's interesting. Very international family. It is. And- I do. I feel like we're touching many parts of the world. But honestly, I feel like this is the story of many families that we are touching many parts of the world and we're trying to navigate and negotiate who are we in the midst of these many cultural identities, especially in this country where our country is so intent on defining people's experiences based on what you look like. You look at a person and you see that I have brown skin. And so people have this very narrow narrative of what that means to be a black American. And that's one thing I really try to push up against in the book is the idea that the borders of blackness are actually very wide and there are many stories that fit in here. Why do you think that happens? Well, I think honestly that we are looking for shortcuts. And we want to have easy ways to classify people. I think our country has honestly a wretched history of classifying people and deciding who has certain privileges and who doesn't have certain privileges just based on what we look like. And so I think we have that history that we live with and we still see it even in our current times, even when people's stories may not necessarily fit the typical narrative that we've decided to offer people. Now, Patrice, we've talked about uh, moving a lot here, right? And physically, but you've also moved in terms of your career as well. You went from being an engineer, community management, yes. and, and and similar to me, because I didn't get into writing right away, and now I'm a journalist. Okay. Uh, you kind of find your way, and there's no freer occupation, I think, than, than being a writer, just to be able to share your thoughts. When you speak about leaving the engineering field and how you know, it wasn't easy for you. Why did you decide to leave the field? And was that a difficult decision for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, 
I did. I became an engineer. That was actually one of my great hopes that my father had for me is that I would become an engineer. And honestly, I think as a woman and a black woman who really excelled in math and science, engineering was a good fit for me. I enjoy solving problems. I gravitate to that area. But I also think the reality is that there are many other interests that I have. And so there's a fullness to who I am, as just as I believe there is for many people. And so I think for me, one of the challenges leaving engineering was the reality that I knew that I was in many ways a role model for other black girls in my community. And I think it was hard to give up that role knowing that actually my story and journey to becoming an engineering, to becoming an engineer could inspire other black girls as well. But honestly, I feel at this point as a writer, as I give space to these stories and write stories that affirm the experience of other black women, and other black girls out there like me, I still feel like I'm able to be that role model for them too. So I think it's worked out, but I think it's not a simple journey. And I realize as I talk to some of my other peers that not everyone is feeling that weight of being a black woman and figuring out what is what are my decisions that I'm making for me, but what are the decisions I'm also making that impact the community around me. Patrice, one of the uh, essays in your book is entitled An Abundance of Impossible Things, which describes uh, the fear that a lot of people of color felt uh, when uh, the massacre took place in a Charleston church. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, so that essay, honestly... That was one of the hardest essays for me to write. So it concerns living in the South in the aftermath of the Charleston massacre and just the presence of the Confederate flag in so many places. I honestly see it very regularly on my drive here and around Charlotte in a city that I, in my mind, think of as you know progressive, that we've moved past some of these things and yet that reality that it's still there. So yeah, so that essay, it was really challenging for me to write to try and figure out how do I speak the truth of what it is that I'm experiencing, but also honor and acknowledge the things that are good about our life here, too. And so I feel like, ultimately, I did capture that kind of tension that we experience as we're trying to figure out where is it that we fit? Where do we belong? Does my family truly belong here in Charlotte? Is there a better place? That's a question that I raise. I mean, the struggles that we have here, would they be struggles we would have in many other parts of the country too? And I almost wonder that, yeah, that probably is the case. And so so I feel like with that essay, I'm allowing people who may not have my experience as a black woman to enter in and see something that maybe they don't necessarily live with, a fear that they may, might not live with. But then for others who maybe share my experience being a black person or a person of color, a black woman, that there is a sense of affirmation for the reality of the story that I'm telling. Uh, so we go from Charlotte to uh, Charlottesville, right? And and we talk about, it was always, we're now at a year uh, since uh, those protests in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, unfortunately, uh, the University of, uh, right near the University of Virginia, uh, where, where a woman was killed and, and all these uh, horrible things happening uh, during a white supremacy rally. And it, Politico just came out with a poll. It says 55% of voters say race relations have worsened under Donald Trump compared to 16% who say they've gotten better. Now, in today's current climate, you know, race relations are continually on display. So what do you, what's the message you want readers to take away from your book after, after reading it? The, the one thing you'd like them to walk away that maybe uh, can make the world a little bit better place? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And honestly, I think it depends a little bit on who the reader is. 
as I was saying in the earlier question, I feel like for readers who may share much overlap with my experience, maybe they're a person of color, uh, they're, they're a black woman in this country, I just feel like by offering my stories out there, there's a sense of affirmation to them that your story also matters, it's important, and it's real. And so I feel like in our current society, we don't often make enough space for the reality that the things that I'm sharing, the experiences that, that I've had, these are happening not just to me, but to many other people out there in the world. And so I feel like here's this sense of affirmation, right? I think the other thing that I really hope that people would take away, maybe who do not share my personal experience, maybe they come from the white culture, whatever that may be, is that they will see points of connection with my story. So true, I write about immigration and I write about race relations, but I also write about things like marriage and family and mothering. And I feel like in those moments, people have an opportunity to connect with my story and then let that bring them across the bridge to experience something new, to see a different story and recognize that this is still another aspect of a human being living their life. Patrice Gopo is the author of All the Colors We Will See. It's a collection of essays that look at the difficulties we all face in our lifelong journeys. You can buy the book at uh, Amazon, any place that a good book is sold. Thanks very much for being with us, Patrice. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Take jo- care. Joe, we'll be back, and we're going to speak to Sam Borofsky. He's a filmmaker right here in Staten Island. Excellent. We'll be right back. Summer is here, and that means the Brooklyn Cyclones are back in action. Come out to MCU Park and catch a game at the most fun ballpark in America. The best seats in the house start at just $15 and just 10 on Wednesdays. Buy yours now by going to brooklyncyclones.com tickets. Brooklyn Cyclones Baseball. Amazing starts here. Dear Calvary Hospital, my dad was at the end of his life, suffering from pancreatic cancer. I knew there was only one place that could relieve his pain and ours as well. Calvary Hospital. His wish was to die at home, so it was Calvary Home Hospice that provided Dad with the quality of life he deserved, filled with exceptional comfort and warmth. He passed on with dignity and grace, and we were all there with him. A year later, my mom needed the same Calvary care, and once again, Calvary's expert home hospice staff was there for us. My parents gave me unqualified love their entire lives. There was no better way for me to return this love than with Calvary's care. Yours truly, Deborah DiGregorio. This is Frank Calamari, president of Calvary Hospital. Our world-renowned hospice program brings our expert end-of-life care right into your home. Call us at 718-518-2465. Liquid Dreams Design. Outstanding for all your printing needs, especially same-day service including banners, signs, posters, graphics, custom wall coverings, and step-and-repeat backdrops. Call 718-627-8599 and mention to Sales Media Now to get 10% off. Or visit their website at liquiddreamsdesign.com. The FBI reports there is a burglary in the U.S. every 15 seconds. If you're not alarmed, you should be. At Alarms R Us, we keep your loved ones safe with our burglar and fire alarm systems and 24-hour central station monitoring. Call Alarms R Us toll-free at 866-996-6900 to schedule your free security consultation. Again, that number is 866-996-6900. It's always better to be safe than sorry. So call Alarms R Us now to protect your home and family.
and Butchies of Brooklyn, Italian kitchen and legendary desserts. We offer everything, a cafe, a bakery, a restaurant, and full bar. Our kitchen offers old-world Italian recipes, handed down from generation to generation, specializing in Italian-American cuisine. Let us host your next affair in our home, or we can cater to you in your home. Located in Staten Island at 4864 Arthur Kill Road, and you can call us at 718-227-0002. In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington on 710 WOR. Hey gang, welcome to the arena. My name is Monsignor Kieran Harrington here with Joe Concha from The Hill. Hello. Thanks very much for being with us again. And uh, today we're going to speak a little bit with uh, a filmmaker. And it's kind of interesting. Everybody loves movies. The American movie industry is a mainstay for the whole world. We're grateful to Sam Borofsky, who's a filmmaker from Staten Island. He produced and directed films such as The Mandela Maker and Nightclub, as well as In This Moment. Thanks, Sam, for being with us. A pleasure to be here. Sam, tell us a little bit about your work. How did you get into the business of making movies? You know, it's a funny story. I haven't, I've only told this to about a handful of people. Uh, but I, I was a journalist before. I always wanted to be a filmmaker. And, you know, sometimes you, you get caught on the path Joe of Joe wants life. to be a filmmaker, too. So he's listening intently right now. He needs to make a couple of bucks. I made a film uh, once, but we'll talk about that another time. We're going to talk afterwards. We're okay. going to talk afterwards. So uh, one night I was a little frustrated with being a, a sports journalist. I uh, went to bed. This is a totally true story. And without going into everything, uh, I had a dream, and I don't know how to explain it other than I saw Jesus in the dream. Mm-hmm. Woke up in a cold sweat. Literally, he reached out, he touched me. I woke up mm-hmm. in a cold sweat. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And it was very real. People will say, oh, no, that was just a dream. It was more than a dream. What do you look like? Do you look like the way you expect him to look like? So people are going to they're gonna get angry at me for saying this. He looked like he looked in the photos with the blue eyes. and yeah. the, he had the beard? But, and the beard. Okay. But the thing is, To me, I always felt that Jesus will appear to you the way you're comfortable seeing him. Mm -hmm. He might appear differently, maybe more Arabic, maybe more whatever to somebody else. Mm -hmm. But to me, he appeared to, I have the frame photo of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in my home, in my office. And I think that that's how I was comfortable. I woke up in a cold sweat. It took me about 10 minutes to calm down. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I was like... That would be ironic that you see Jesus and then you're dead. It's like, wait a minute. It's supposed to be. <laughs> well, then it's it the wouldn't other be, way around. That wouldn't right? be ironic, right? Well, that's a very good point. <laughs> well, right. well, usually the dead, then the then Jesus. Go it's not the Jesus. other way around. It's, well, so <laughs> I, I fell back asleep. And in those days when I was a sports journalist, you know, I'd work at night, slept till about 1130, woke up. And I remembered I always wanted to be a, a, a filmmaker. And I had this shoebox with bar napkins and restaurant napkins with movie ideas that they would come to my head. I'd write them, put them in my pocket. And it's a, you always hear that phrase, they say, God knows what you want before you know what you want. It's so true. And I, that day I made the commitment. I didn't get right out of my sports job. I was, I was covering the NFL and the Giants and some other things. But for that last year, year and a half, I was more, I wrote a script, totally away from sports, and I was like gearing towards this. And when I did get into this business, I've never looked back. I've never been, uh, I've never had regrets and I think I would have had regrets had I not done this. So it really is true. God knows what we want before we even. Can you make know. a living in this business? You can, but it's you know it's like everything else. To to do something that's great and substantial, it's 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 never easy. I don't think our path is easy, but I I do believe there's a reward, there's a payoff, and I believe faith is a big part of it. I've learned to trust in God over the years a lot more than when I first got into business. I used to be like so hard to get money. How, how am I going to raise a million dollars for a movie? Then you get oh I raised a million dollars for a movie. Then it's like you know what. With this, I have a latest project that I'll talk a little bit about the end called Stay Fresh. It's a feature comedy that I, I adapted 
from a story that I, I'm writing, I'm directing and producing with a name actor I can't mention right now. And, you know, I just said, I'm going to have faith in God. And the more I said that, I had a meeting with that actor eight weeks ago. Things happened that people would have said never would have happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I'm living proof. You know, it, it really is real. But the, the whole funny thing about faith is you have to see what you can't. You have to believe what you can't see and touch. That's interesting I, that you were a sports writer. I was a sports writer once as well for, for Fox yeah. Sports and NBC Sports. And I kind of got bored with it because it got a little repetitive, right? And you were covering the Giants. Were you covering the Giants not during the Ray Hanley years? Please, God, say no. The very beginning of my tenure, I did. Oh, you did. Okay. That was a little interesting. Yeah, I'll bet. But then you were there when they went to the Super Bowl against the Ravens, right? You saw some good things, too. But eventually you said, all right, I, I, I want to get out. You, you had this vision. That's amazing. Uh, Mandela Maker, and I, I particularly uh, was a big fan of nightclub. You know, yeah, the old Mickey Rooney was in that, right? And Natasha Leone. And the big and star was Ernie Borgnine. What a gentleman. Yeah, Ernie Borgnine. Mm. Ernie Borgnine was a true movie star and a true human being. I held his Oscar from Marty in his home, uh, and he still makes me cry with, with the performance from Marty, but he was one of the greatest people I've ever had the chance to work with, and I'm so grateful to that. And that was all God. The way that came about was crazy, uh, that we fit him into the budget and everything worked, and uh, Ernie still demands some some bucks, huh? Poseidon Adventure. He's riding that wave. He, <laughs> he, he was Rogo in the Poseidon Adventure, and he was he was so he was so great. And the Mandala Maker uh, with that one, uh, a, a man named Gregory Nissen came to me. He was a composer, not a writer, and he wanted to write something about an artist who's trying to get over a tragedy by painting Tibetan mandalas, which I found interesting. And I started looking them up, and Carl Jung wrote about them, and he says they have healing. Like actual psychologists believe they have healing powers. So I said to him, I want to do this, but I think there needs to be a spiritual backstory, and I think there needs to be God. And Greg's sort of a hippie. He's like, yeah, whatever. I'm not really a writer, but I don't know about God. And I was like, well, Greg, I know about God. Let me put it in there. And there's a great part in the movie where she's talking to a guy in the, Rubin, the real Rubin Museum of Art, and we had Terrence Mann to play him, who won a Tony on Broadway. Uh, he was John Lennon in Lennon. Mm -hmm. He was Beast in Beauty and the Beast. And Terrence Mann says to her, and it's a, Steven Spiel, uh, Stephen King did not create the line for the stand. It was before him, but he used it in the stand where he says uh, the famous line, it doesn't matter if you believe in God, what matters is that God believes in you. So I changed it a little to try and keep it open to people. And I said, he says, it doesn't matter if you believe in the higher being. What truly matters is that the higher being believes in you. And it, it created a dialogue. It was one woman who said, you're saying it's okay not to believe in God. I was like, that's absolutely not what I'm saying. It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's saying that if, God forbid, God didn't believe in us, you know, like we all, all the time, so many people, they put it there, God's not real or God didn't help me on that. Look, I'm, I'm, I did it when I was younger. God, why didn't you help me on this? And then you get what you want three years later the right way. You know, God's, God's timing is always perfect. And I always love that line. And, you know, when he says what's truly important is that the higher being believes in you. And then at the end, there's a whole monologue where she talks about God because she's not an atheist. She's an agnostic. She, she acknowledges there's something out there. And then in the end, she says she believes in God, and she talks about how in the Bible, it's mentioned 365 times, which I always found interesting, do not fear. Mm -hmm. One for every day of the year. The whole message is never fear, do not fear. So, I mean, when you're making these, just uh, thinking about like the, to, to make money, how do, you, how do you balance this question about I want to make really great art, but at the same time, I know I got to make something that's a commercial success. How do you deal with that? Well, I think like the themes like in nightclub, I think these themes relate to everybody about, you know, we don't cast away our elderly. We should. And my mom at the time was battling Alzheimer's and she passed Joan Borowski, God rest her soul. And uh, 
You know, I wanted to do that movie for two reasons. For my mom, I felt like I connected with her doing that movie. And it was very hard filming in the old folks' home at first. But then they loved us being there. We used to let them eat with the crew. We had a caterer. They, they loved us being there. It made their days more exciting. Because when you first walk in, it's depressing. And when you walk in, the, we filmed in the dementia ward. Then after that, we were helping them. One guy's like, could you help me change the channel? And, you know, it, it, it became like, you know, you, you look forward to going there. And uh, we brighten their days. And, you know, we even doubled the dementia ward, some of the empty rooms for the kids' dorms in UCLA, mm -hmm. the interior. We filmed the exteriors in UCLA. And uh, I'm sorry, USC. I'm sorry. It was a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I think that there are themes that play for everyone, not only with the elderly, but wanting to be in love. We talked a lot about the economy because the kid's father calls him and says, you got to come home. We don't have enough money in college. And I, I am an eclectic filmmaker. I have done horror. I've done comedy. I've done drama. I don't only do faith-based films, but I try, even in movies that have nothing to do with God, I try to put one thing about God in there, and I want people to be like, why was that in there? Why, you know, I'm laughing. This was an R-rated comedy, a soft R-rated comedy. Yeah. I don't do only those movies. And then they go, why did he just talk about God? What is that, you know? And people come up to me that would never talk about God, and I think they seem to be more comfortable talking to me. They're like, wait, you watch The Sopranos? You like Quentin Tarantino <clears throat> movies? How can you believe in God? I believe in God. I like those movies. And they're, they're like, who is this Jesus guy anyway? And I try to tell them. And they usually come to me. I don't have to. You know, I always tell people, I'm always here if you want to talk. I'm never going to throw my faith on you, only if you want it. But, you know, my faith has helped me. I just said to someone yesterday, I actually just said to a young filmmaker who does not believe in God, and we were talking, and I said, let me tell you something. You ought to try it for a year. See if your life gets better. Maybe it won't, but I tend to think you may not get all your dreams, but if you get one quarter of your dreams and your life is better and you feel better and you're spiritually more happy, I like going to church. I feel better after, after going to church. You know, like uh, I have this injury on my foot, which is almost healed. But, you know, when you, I, like I feel bad because I feel uplifted after I go. I love singing and I'm a terrible singer. But, but in church, they seem to think I sound good. I, they, they're <laughs> like, you should join the choir. And I'm like, can you check the hearing? But it's, I just, I, you know, I have a relationship that I couldn't describe with Jesus and with God. Uh, I, I know it's real. I've had other experiences other than the one I told you. Uh, and people would be like, you're crazy. I'm not crazy. I, and I prayed for things that were crucial in my career and they've happened the next morning. Mm -hmm. Things that were like really teetering on the brink of falling really? apart. All right, but you're Meetings. a filmmaker, right? So here's my question to you. Let's say you pray for something and it doesn't happen. Does that mean then that, you know, God doesn't kind of respond to us the way we kind of expect we can say no more i don't well, believe this that's a great question the answers come in god's time and sometimes you will, will you will get what you want but not in the time frame but it's better that way because that's the way it will work other times like if i really want to make a movie and i feel compelled i feel like i'm not hurting anyone and this is a good thing and i'm going to bring people to god great but maybe you meet a great girl and she's very unhealthy for you or maybe you get to a project with bad literally bad people that might steal money from the budget and God doesn't let that happen, and he's protecting you. We don't know it at the time. Honestly. Joe, we got a minute. Right. You and got the last not, question. Yeah, it's, it's obvious it's not a McDonald's drive through You're not going to get what you no, want No, no. And, right and away. years later, you'll see. I'll wrap it up quick. Years later, you'll see that, like, you know what? I was. It was good that I wouldn't have that. I wouldn't be working on this this movie, Stay Fresh, if I had gotten some bad things. Right? Okay, either or question, all right? What's your favorite religious movie? Is it Passion of the Christ or Oh God, Book 2 with George Burns? <laughs> That's number one. Quite different. Okay. Uh, you don't have to answer the question if you don't like. No, and I do. I'm trying to. There's so many great faith-based movies. I do love Passion of the Christ. I think that 30 is, seconds. We're almost out of time. Yeah. No more. Either or. Uh, Passion <laughs> of the Christ. Passion the most, of the Christ. Okay. Okay. I should have just left it to those two. And tell <laughs> us about Stay Fresh. Ten seconds. Okay. Stay Fresh is a comedy. Uh, and I always say to people, God bless. Stay Fresh. 
And uh, you get to the end, you're right in fade out, you're done. Sam Barofsky is a filmmaker right here in Staten Island. He has made such films as The Mandela Maker and Nightclub, as well as In This Moment. Thanks, Sam, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank Joe, you, Sam. It's been a real pleasure again. We're going to talk after, believe me. And may the Lord hold you all in the palm of his hand. Brought to you by the Brooklyn Cyclones. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.